0: I'm David Sangvi, and this is No Cost Extension. Today, I'm with Revathi Radhakrishnan, who's the founder of Anandvil Trust. They have been working tirelessly with nomadic communities, educating children and empowering women. Revathi and I talk about her joining the NGO sector after the tsunami, changing careers from a journalist to a social worker, as well as the plight of nomadic communities in Tamil Nadu and across India. To start with, Revitian, You know, many people in the rebuild portfolio, many phenomenal NGO leaders all have different stories of why they decided to do the work that they're doing. And I think you also have had a unique journey to get here. And so I think if you can start a little bit with what that journey was, that would be great.
1: So I'm Revati and the reason why I was named Revati by my parents, two lower middle-class government employees is because they wanted a son. And I was the second daughter, and they wanted me to be the last daughter. So, Revati is the last star in the Hindu constellation. So, which is why they named me Revati. And it used to be a story that made me very, very angry when I was young. You know, I used to constantly fight. And somehow it worked out also because the next child was a son. So, I felt doubly annoyed by this idea and the way it came into effect.
0: I'm sorry, I just want to pause there. How does your brother feel about this? Because you must have blamed him as a child and he had nothing to do with it. (laughs) Poor
1: boy. yeah. I know my family didn't really treat us differently. But then we were also living in a very gendered society where my mother had limited rights, like all women had boundaries. I grew up in a house which was marred by a lot of violence. And that has been a difficult experience. And I constantly tried to think of imagine worlds and escape in them. And books really helped me a lot to do that. So I was a very vociferous reader of Tamil English literature from like pulp fiction to totally un- understandable, like philosophical books and all that, because that was my only refuge. So when I grew up, I wanted to be a journalist or an advocate. But my family, coming from their background, thought it's not a profession that's suitable for a girl from our milieu. So I studied mathematics and from college time onwards, I've been working with any possible voluntary actions. You know, I was teaching playman dweller children, running small health camps in slum, slum tenements in Chennai and all that. I did become a journalist, even though I studied mathematics. For seven, eight years, I was a journalist, television producer, worked in film industry and all. And then the tsunami happened. I came to volunteer at Nagapatnam and... Tsunami was a really big natural disaster that I had seen, even as a journalist or otherwise. And Nagapatnam, especially, which was the ground zero, which had the maximum number of deaths, was a bizarre sight. It was like going into one of those dystopic novels of Margaret Atwood or something when the whole world is like ended and then you're going. Because when I came in on the 29th, which was like five days after the disaster happened, there were dead bodies lying around. There was no electricity. We didn't have fuel to burn the dead bodies. Getting food was like a very big task. And I remember still that scene of the Nagapatnam bus stand when I got down at 5 a.m. or It was still dark, absolute dark. And in the middle of the bus stand, there are like five coffins, which were bodies of uh, pilgrims who died in Velankani. And it were supposed to go to Bengal. And the coffins were there in the middle of the bus stand. That was a very, very easy thing. Initially, the work was all about clearing dead bodies and stuff. Which was important and critical, but I felt like it was really numbing me down. Because every next dead body you find is a child. And when a child dies, I feel like it's a lot of hope that is dead. On the second or third day, I think, I just decided I don't want to do this because it's really doing something to me emotionally. So then I chose to go to the camps and work with the children there. Many children had lost their parents. Many parents were searching for their children. And in this process, as we were working in this relief and rehab phase, we were all like a bunch of volunteers are having chai, but after 10 days, so tea shops and all are open and some kind of civilization was back. And a lot of relief materials were pouring in, literally pouring in. People were throwing food and milk in the roads and all that. It was that kind of uh, relief coming in. So we were having chai in the bus stand. And one girl, a 10-year-old girl, came to beg to us. She looked like any child who's begging to you in a big city, you know, like rags and dusty and all. And the most disturbing sight than her was the child that she was holding in her Arms, and that was a very, very emaciated baby. Her name was Lakshmi. Lakshmi was four months old. So I've seen malnourished children. I've seen them in Central India and I've seen them as a journalist in videos from other countries. But I didn't expect that such a child could be in Tamil Nadu because we are generally good on those numbers at least, I felt. And that was very shocking. That child and this girl and this child were a shock. And that is a time when, as I said, there was so much relief everywhere and food was like easily available. We were not even buying food. We were eating in the relief camps. So why are these children begging to us was a big question. So we tried to talk to them. And as all children who come to beg to you, retreat when you ask any question, they retreated and they just walked away. And I just followed them to find where they are going. And we found this group of 50 families in a park. And at that time, I, even though I'm from Tamil Nadu and I've read so many books, as I myself have claimed, I didn't know that the Boom Boom Matakarars were a nomadic tribe and they still are living in villages in large number of groups and clans all over Tamil Nadu. So we realized that they were the Boom Boom Matakarars. and Lakshmi became my personal life goal, you know. Wherever I was in my life and whatever I'd seen because of the tsunami, I somehow felt like I had to protect Lakshmi and I also believed that I can protect Lakshmi. I mean, I had the power, you know, I'm a journalist, I'm English speaking. I could call the collector, I could even call a minister and I thought I can do that. But I tried that for the next three months, I left it on all other tasks that I had because somehow I felt it's this child has survived tsunami, which is something that nobody can help you to do, but she shouldn't die of malnutrition. So the three months was also a crash course to me into how the system operates for people in the extreme margins, you know, not just poor people, but the nomadic tribes are not just poor. They live in extreme poverty and they're completely invisible. They don't have documents. So nobody knows, nobody even bothers about them because they are not part of any list or anything. And the three months was a big lesson in sociology, human rights and many things, but in medicine also. Unfortunately, Lakshmi succumbed to malnutrition at the end of three months and that was a big uh, jolt for me because one, I really loved that child and I thought she loved me also. And when she passed away, that was a big jolt personally and also to all that ego I had, know, that I can protect one child. I mean, just one child. I can't protect 8000 people who died in tsunami. I can't do that, this, but I can do, I can protect one child. That was like really questioned. So then I thought, I kind of reevaluated my own values, you know, like how we take even change for granted. Like it is possible. If you do this, that will happen. And here is a community where it seems like completely uphill. But when we started Vanavid, we started actually in the next week after Lakshmi passed away. In the next week, it was with this very emotional thing of giving other Lakshmis in the community a chance at life and childhood which is a right that is inalienable to any human being or any being for that matter.
0: Thank you, uh, Devati, for sharing. I think we were working with a fisherman community in Mahabalipuram about a year before the tsunami hit. And I still remember waking up in the morning in Mumbai, Nir and I sort of seeing the news and thinking about this particular fisherman community. And we also, I think, were probably there the 29th of december and i remember this vividly two or three reasons number one at the time at least nira was pregnant with our first son Ayush, and we were not gonna let that sort of stop us to come there and so we got a lot of resistance from our family and our parents and everyone else and we said look this is the life this is what we do so it's not a question of i guess selfishly not questioning sort of the unborn child that we have with us, but more those who are there. We spent quite a bit of time there and sort of why, when disasters hit, number one, it, like you just said, it affects those communities who are invisible even more. And so, of course, disaster and tragedy is horrible. But number two, many times these communities were suffering well before the man made or natural disaster happened. And that's why, sort of, long term support, not just on relief. And um, I guess two or three years before that, we also were in right after the Gujarat earthquake and saw the same thing. Again, lots of relief, lots of aid, but post that no one really is there. And again, even after the Gujarat earthquake, um, certain minority groups had nothing. When resources are scarce, you know, and, and everyone then just comes to their own clan and they become so protective. And I'm sure that's human nature, but but then those who are on the margins sort of get left behind. But a lot of what we're doing in Rebuild was was our learnings from that period. And that's why we get five-year grants. That's why we work with communities long-term. But no, lot, lots, of, lots of similarities. So first of all, thank you for sharing. And, and I think it brought me back also. I guess the toll that it takes on us as individuals is a lot. I mean, you know, we speak a lot about, and you know this, about mental well-being and rebuild. But if you can talk a little bit about that, because I think it's very hard to do this work. And, and you know that we're not suffering as much as others, but we're still suffering.
1: Yeah, actually, what you say is so true, because during COVID, and Nagapatnam is on the brink of one, on the sea, okay, we were on end of this world. So disasters are like, regular relatives visiting us like every three years we have a flood and on that but covid felt so much like a tsunami i actually remembered the scene in the tsunami i remember when we were clearing dead bodies there was this father who used to come and his son's name is Tamil arasen i think it's like a vast land you would have gone there nakrapetai it was all like slushy marshy land that's where you are finding the dead bodies and he used to be calling out from morning till night Tamil! 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 He'll be going on calling. I used to hear it in my... I mean, even now, I think if I close my eyes, I can hear him. But that used to haunt me for a long time. The COVID felt like that, you know? Like, and you couldn't even shout because every morning there was a news. Like my own, I mean, I'm talking about myself. We were working, we were providing food for patients. We were providing food for patients at home. We are running a call center. The state was running a call center. We were also running a call center. My whole day used to be talking to people for oxygen concentrators or oxygen plants because Nagapatnam still does not have a single ventilator and still does not have a single private hospital with an ICO. Which means the government hospital is the only source. And so, one, we were worried about our community, but we were also worried about everybody, like including us. Also, it's the same time... Banevil's work was getting noticed because we were working out of Nagapatnam, but we were doing a lot of work. And that kind of courage, that kind of a disaster gives you, you know, like because of tsunami, I, I started an institution. Otherwise, if anybody had asked me, I would not even have said that I can't run an institution because that's not what I thought I was capable of. And COVID gave me this strength and courage to ask anybody and everybody for an oxygen concentrator because I felt like it's needed here. So our work was growing and we were doing more projects. Our community, people were reaching out like the, the nomads. That was the only time they stayed in their villages. We know them very well in the three districts that we work in. But during COVID, the Bumbu Matakaras and the Narikurvers and other nomadic communities started calling us from various districts. In fact, we used the COVID to map the communities wherever they are, which now gives us a database of these people, which is not there with anybody, not even with the government. So things were like happening like that, work is opening up. And that's a really positive thing, you know, like, we got a lot of donors and a lot of visibility to our work. That meant also growth, you know, on the one hand, the crisis and the lockdown were really difficult to deal with. It's a challenge that nobody, I mean, none of us knew how to go around it. Our people work in places of large gathering and throughout the covid those were the places which were completely shut which meant we had to support them with food how many times can you do relief it's also not a viable process that is one thing and then we were uh, helping other vulnerable groups like single women widows and people with different able people all that and our people are calling from all over tamil nadu and we are mapping them we're doing that and i'm losing people and i can't even say goodbye to them like some of them were very very dear and important to me so I couldn't even get closure that I couldn't even see them see their funeral or anything you know and that was a big thing that I held in my chest and I think it's true about many people who work in these situations like you or like my team so everybody suffered in the covid so that's how it was mental health is a serious issue and many times we feel like I have felt actually you are feeling like you're depressed because you have the privilege to feel it Whereas the community you work with, they don't even have that luxury to sit down and think about it. But somehow I find like marginalized communities have their own ways of not saying that they don't need formal mental health care, but they're better equipped about dealing and sharing and these things. Whereas people like us who are into work like this, where there's a lot of guilt and about your privilege, about your positionality, about appropriation all these concepts that are going on in our head, we feel we don't take the step to share things. And actually COVID took me to a complete burnout and I went to a therapist and that helped me. Otherwise, I don't know how I would have managed these conflicting things that are happening.
0: But to your point, I think those who work in the NGO sector across the board, I feel we probably don't focus on this enough. I know with three... India, again, I think we've been very lucky to partner with groups like the Intention Collective and others that are focusing on mental health. Even at Dasra, we started uh, working with Mana Wellness. But so I think there are many more programs that exist today. But I think it's again, if we don't put our oxygen masks on ourselves, then we can't help anyone. And I think at least, you know, with a lot of the organizations, to your point that we're working, and I think even the workshops that we have, in terms of everyone coming together i feel that itself is therapeutic at least it is for me
1: you know i had stopped behaving normally or like looking at a day as a day you know like you were in constantly in a firefighting mode and troubleshooting mode and then just to go there and see so many people like you who also worked and i mean it just humanizes you because until I felt like I was going on like an automaton because I thought it was important. I have to do this. I have to do this. And that's what my role is. But to feel like you're also a normal human being who has pains and you can also fail. You don't. Know, you can't succeed all the time. And then you have to have friends and you have to talk normally to people. That is itself a big, I mean, a very big part of uh, therapy, I think. The Astral Philanthropy Week really helped me. Not just the Philanthropy Week, our workshop. And meeting people from various NGOs. So that's how I met so many people I knew. And I met so many people I've always wanted to meet, you know, not that I knew their name and organizations, but the people who are working with nomadic tribes, like Deepa Pawar and Sanjana Meshram, and all, I was like super thrilled to just to meet them as persons because sometimes it feels very lonely and you can get very egoistic or very depressed.
0: And I think to your point, and this is where communities, I think, the fact they're part of a community even, and they speak about this more often, because there is no shame in pain and suffering and mistakes. And like you said, therefore, having that community itself is therapeutic. Yeah, it makes a difference. I think a lot of the listeners will not be aware of what it means to be part of a nomadic tribe. And so, like you said, it's so great that we I've been able to have different colleagues across India focusing and supporting the same community. And I think once you even said that, it was the first time you didn't have to explain to people what it meant to be a nomadic tribe. But I apologize, I'm asking you to explain now to our listeners, what does this mean in the Indian context?
1: I think the problem is more about the overall issue also, because it is an invisible issue. When we say NT, which is nomadic tribes, a DNT, which is denotified tribes, and there is a very small section of semi-nomadic tribes. So, when we say the Vimukta Jati, like that's what they're called in Maharashtra or elsewhere in the Hindi-speaking world, in Gujarat. Gujarat, Maharashtra has the highest uh, percentage of the Vimukta Jatis. The NT, DNT, SNT complex comprises of 10% of Indian population, which is 140 million people, and the biggest problem with the NTDNT community is also that they are scattered. they scattered because they used to be nomadic. They used to be moving from place to place Until date, they don't have a piece of land. Actually, Indian government in its report says 98% of the NTDNTs don't have any land, which is a homestead land also, not land for agriculture or livelihood. And why are they so invisible? Because There was this act called Criminal Tribes Act brought by the British in the 1870s to 1930s. They marked so many communities in India as criminal tribes. So in 1947, when India got freedom, I'm quoting Dakshin Bajrange, this amazing theatre director and leader of the NTDNT people. He says in his TED Talk that in 1947, August 15, when this whole country got its independence, Even prisoners in jails were released, but not the NTDNT people. They were kept locked in the settlements, which were open prisons, which they can't leave without police permission. And police can come any time and arrest anybody. So when did they get independence? Actually, after five years, in 1952, August 30th, which is what we celebrate as a Vimukta Jat day, the Indian government denotified the criminals which is why they are called denotified tribes. And after that, what happened? The act gone. British called us criminals, but that act is out. So we thought our own government will consider as equal citizens. But the Habitual Offenders Act was brought in within a year, which means there are people who are habituated to offences, which essentially means theft. So what is the result of it? All these people who were listed in these things and who are seen as criminals already because this is like a 200-year history that goes into the DNA of a society, right? Now you have an act which allows police to go into any settlement of these NTDNT communities and arrest people. They can arrest for any crime that they can't close, which has been proved in Tamil Nadu. And many times these people are arrested for very, very petty crimes and they languish in jails forever. Slowly in the last 20 years, a movement has been built by themselves. I mean, all of us doing work with them. We are doing some work, but the community itself came together and they have formed a coalition and they are fighting their issue. And then in 2005, which is when Vanavil was started, the first commission on the NTDNT people was formed. And they came up with a list of, it was a long list. And even then, they didn't know the exact population. They were the ones who said at least 10%. Because they will certainly be more than that because they're not enlisted in census. Those communities name doesn't exist in your schedules. And the biggest problem of this is they can't get any state welfare, like housing for poor people, or livelihood loans and all. And forget state welfare, they can't get a community certificate, which in this country is very, very important if you have to access public schooling. Because from age standard onwards, your teacher will ask you for your community certificate because you get scholarships based on that, because they need to give a report to the government saying this many students are SC, this many students are are ST, this many students are MBC. And these people don't have the means to go to the RDO office and get a community certificate, which is actually a travesty in the sense that when we found out why they are not going to school, one, they didn't like school. They had a nomadic culture in them. That is fine, that we could work with. But the biggest problem why... This 10% of population is not accessing education. They couldn't, they are not listed in any list. Like their caste name is Perumal Matakaran and that does not exist in any schedule. So that's the problem. And then by somehow they got this ST certificate in some districts. In Tamil Nadu, in Nagapatnam, they are ST. Next is Tiruvaru. There they are NBC. Next is Pudukotai. There they have got SC. Next is Trichy. where they have got ST again. And there are four districts in Tamil Nadu where the district administration has completely said no. We will not give you any certificate. They've gone to court. They've gone to every possible authority that they can reach out to. You know, they're like these are like poor people who are literally many of them. The women and children are forced to begging, and the men are either they sell plastics or do like uh, manual scavenging or iron and rack picking, scrap picking. They are extremely poor. They don't have houses. They don't have sanitation facility, they don't have most things that we think are our rights, you know, or our fundamental rights. But still, this person, Murugan in Krishnagiri, he fought this battle for 20 years to get community certificate for his sons. And till date, he hasn't got it. And the district has given a written letter saying, we will not give you a community certificate because you are not this. His two sons, one is Madesh, was refused admission because he didn't have a community certificate, was on the verge of committing killing himself. And at that time, through somebody, he called me and we took the boy to a private college. We paid extra fees, like 40,000 we pay. But he should be getting free education because he's ST. And he's studying now and he's a cricket player. And the second son also, no certificate. We put him in an engineering college. The thing is, these things we can do. But Vanneville is not God. No, We are not reaching out to everywhere. What about places where there's nobody available to talk for these children or to help these children to get through to college. So, when the state asks all these people, why are you not enrolling them into education, improving education, the question is, there's so much discrimination based on these community certificates outside the schools and inside the schools, the stigma our kids face, I can't even list here because it just breaks my heart, you know, because I have personally witnessed how the teachers treat our children. Other children treat our children. And how many girls drop out in the 8th standard, nine standard? This Narikuravar community, generally in, in common culture, there is this eroticized female figure of a Narikuravar woman, you know, that's been peddled forever and ever. And when these Kuro- Narikuravar girls go to school, around 8th standard, nine standard, the boys start calling them certain really bad names, and most of them drop out. Like last year, we had a child dropping out at 10th very bright child. We did so much of counseling, but she just didn't go back because she just couldn't handle it. And I didn't know how to equip her to handle such a loaded thing, you know, because those men are calling her, commenting on her. And I can't even complain against this boy, because it's not even a crime, it's a cinema dialogue. But it's so loaded. So the stigma inside the school, lack of community certificate that keeps them out of school is one of the biggest crises that these communities face.
0: Yeah, and I think just this view, like you said, that there's an us versus them, and that's so ingrained. And so tell us a little bit more about what does the organization do? What are your different activities? How have you all grown over the years and learnings and shifts, and maybe even mistakes that you all have made?
1: So when we started in the tsunami, I didn't have a clear blueprint. So I thought I will be here for six months so we didn't bother about fundraising nothing because the challenge before us was these kids were going to beg and they were earning a lot of money and the families believed that they've been cursed to and their children have to beg so these are like like two big challenges here one is uh, economic very real another is like a belief fake system so we didn't bother much about the money part we just called our friends and i think our first donations were given by two of our friends and for the first six months it was like that only i was the only teacher when we started we had 36 children and when we decided to run a school one thing we realized was there were one pull and push factors push factor is the finance the family needs money the child goes to beg then the family gets money that we had to deal with by talking to the community and telling them this is wrong and all that but the pull factor for the children they said two things we spoke to all the children in detail about what they think a school should be and so many things like we did like serious needs assessment with even five-year-olds six-year-olds seven-year-olds they said two things they like about begging one at that time it allows them to have money so they can take a cycle for hire it's called a hour cycle like per hour you pay five rupees or four rupees you get one hour of a cycle so and you ride it and uh, the second is they can watch films and they love films and so these are the two things and then If they have more money, they can eat whatever they like. You know, like basically the kind of junk food that I was making, porota or noodles and stuff like that. So the first donation we got, I remember still, it's around 16,000 rupees. And we bought four cycles. And we put it in front of our small school. So they can use the cycle as much as they like. You ride it as many hours as you can, but you have to keep it in proper condition. The second thing was movies. I think we still do it, but for a long time, Every film that releases, the first day, first show, we will take our children. And I had to watch a lot of horrible Tamil movies in this process. But it helped us vibe, you know. So these two things we did. And then we have to come to teaching part. We have children who are five-year-old who don't know anna, anna, and basic language or math. We have 12-year-olds who don't know the same. And mostly these kids were like, they really have been traveling all their lives, you know, even though they are not as nomadic as earlier, like they don't move as caravans. They go to Velankani, they walk long distances. So we started doing this pedagogy where they can go and do something and come back and uh, they can draw or write. So slowly they pick up reading and writing this way. I'll tell you just one example. In one of the government hospital visits, so when we came back, like the slightly elder children who could write were writing. So this girl called Suda, she's become a nurse now actually, Hey Suda, she wrote in government hospital, I'm telling it in English, she wrote in Tamil, people go to government hospital when they are sick. If you have rupee, she put one rupee sign, okay, she couldn't write rupee. If you have rupee, they treat you well. If you don't have rupee, they give you white tablet. Because in India's government hospitals, they give this huge paracetamol tablet, which is like, They think it's like, a can cure everything on earth, even poverty, social justice, everything. So mostly that's what they give. And I was like, really stunned. Now that's like critical reasoning, right? The child is able to articulate that if you're poor, you go to the government hospital, all you will get is a paracetamol tablet. So all I'm trying to say is I learned a lot. They also hopefully learned a lot. Slowly it took us two years to match the age and skill. And by now we had... Come up with this model. I won't say it's a model or anything. Our pedagogy, which is about doing things and then learning about them, so it's an experiential learning. And uh, then for the first ten years, we were only a school because just getting these kids to school was like a huge challenge. I used to go to the all the places they can beg, you know, in Velankanni bus stand, market, Tiruvaru temple, and even sometimes as far away as Karakal. We will collect them every day from morning 8 o'clock to 10, 10.30. Then we bring them to the school. Then we eat and then we do some work around the building, like whatever work needs to be done. And then we write about it, discuss about it or draw about it. Then the first child went to college in 2014, which is 9 years. And this girl had joined us as a 12-year-old with no literacy or numeracy and in 9 years, she went to college and that's the time when we like actually stopped and looked back. Okay, wow, fine. Most of our friends and well-wishers who had been supporting us till then told us we should close down because by then we had like a 100 children and the operation was much bigger like 10 lakhs or 12 lakhs and and that was not something that I can raise from like 30-40 donors, you know. But we decided we can't. We'll do one last attempt. And we wrote a long letter. That's the first proposal I think we wrote. We wrote about our journey, about our story, blah, blah, and sent it to so many people. And so many people sent it to so many people. You won't believe it. I mean, I still don't believe it. Like three people came forward to help us. None of them I knew. One is Vandana of Banyan. She referred another donor, the Saket Foundation. It's a family foundation in Spain. They continue to support us till date. And one more is another HNI donor who still supports us and we survived and we tried and we're like really much, much better than that in 2008 to now. So this is how we grew. We made a lot more mistakes than any clear plans. I didn't realize the need to have the clear strategy and all these things which we learned through trial and error. Finance, we've always been kept clear accounts, my mother was an executive officer in town panchayat system. So she used to be our first uh, <laughs> auditor and she used to be such a tough boss. And because of that, our finance systems were like perfect all along. So after the 10th year, we thought we do have something that's of value and we should reach it to other children because we were working with a small number of people. And uh, 2014, RTE was there. So <laughs> 2010 onwards, we've been extending our work, educational work to villages in first in our district, next district. Now we are in four districts, we are reaching out a thousand children through our community learning centers. So there we enroll them in a school, we ensure we go and fight with the teachers if discrimination happens and all that. And we also run evening classes and give them nutrition. Malnutrition has always been a problem. So nutrition has been an equal core component of our project as education is post-COVID scenario, we've also started looking at livelihoods for the women because most of the time, the children are having to go to the streets back, even if they're studying because the mother owes loans, installments, and it's difficult to tell a child that ignore what your mother has been through, you just come to school. This year, we are supporting 220 children in our school and child protection projects, 1,000 children through our community learnings and all nomadic children. We kept our focus to that. We didn't give in to this pressure that was on us by many donors to do a school program or a ecosystem. I mean those are not unimportant. I do think they are important projects but nobody else is working with these children and we wanted to focus on them. Also the biggest success I think is we have 125 kids in college as on date and 15 are passed out.
0: Congratulations. That's amazing.
1: Because in 2005, in the Bumbu Matakara, not a single graduate was there. And today, there are like 140 graduates, 125 in the making, 15 already. And 75% of them are girls, women. So if there's one thing that I feel very, very happy about this whole journey, I mean, there's so many happy things that have happened. But the fact that these young women have studied and they come back, now they are actually on our board as invitees. We want to take them on our board. Three of them work with us, and that's been the most gratifying experience for me.
0: No, thank you, Devithi. I think it's absolutely amazing, and I think many NGOs, again, go through similar pathways of, like you said, because of the needs do change every couple of years, and so the creating a school then sort of going down the path of saying, because of the RTE is the Right to Education Act. And so then saying, oh, well, you can support, again, a certain group of children who have been traditionally marginalized in these schools and be sort of their voice. And so invariably, you are also therefore improving the government system as well, which is fantastic because they're here to stay, but still keeping your focus on a community, like we said, is not small in any shape or form. And also have a unique set of issues, unfortunately, that go beyond just poverty. And I think this question about vulnerability is something we thought a lot about and are still trying to understand, but sort of identifying, I guess, different aspects of poverty and oppression. We're looking at groups that are, who are subject to multiple of these areas, realizing again that While, like you said, education and malnutrition is critical for any human, the kind of work you do given these different intersectionalities is different, therefore. And it is not as easily to scale because there are other issues that you're working on as well, which again, many donors don't understand and many donors don't realize and appreciate. It cannot be a one-size-fits-all solution. And I think we're... Again, so lucky to have you and so many other groups that are sort of focusing on these what may seem as niche causes. But again, in this particular case, it's 140 million people. So it's not niche in any sense of the world whatsoever. How long have you been now in the rebuild portfolio? Eight months eight months now. And the reason I ask is, and this is again, I think for many of the listeners who clearly have left now inspired by your story, money donors do not give number one for five years and number two, do not understand what flexible funding even means. And so if you don't mind sharing maybe on with rebuild, at least we give five-year grants each year, 10 lakh rupees, which is a million rupees a year, close to twelve. The 13,000 dollars, but what has been, how is this, I guess, number one, what has the thinking been between you and, of course, the phenomenal team you have? How is this similar or different than what you've received in the past? And if you have made some decisions on how you're going to spend that money, if you can share with us what those decisions are or could be? Yeah,
1: sure. So many times donors try to give only There are many people who say we will buy you material like notebook for the child I'll give. But how will the notebook be bought and how will the notebook be given to the child? That's always a question. There are so many people who donate but nobody says that what is it that you want to do with this money and we will give you money. Also giving a five-year grant for us that's again it's the first time we've got a grant that in the beginning itself says that we will give you for next five years. Some of our donors have been supporting us for Many years, but that's not like it's renewed every year. So I think Rebuild India Fund has reinforced my confidence in this whole sector, you know, because for the first time, I feel like things are changing and things are changing for good. And there is a possibility and space for organizations like us who are working with a complex population and for whom scaling and working out of cities is not a question at all, can be in the forefront and talk about these issues that we are working with. The other thing i really liked about rebuild india is how they selected the partners because i'm sure they went through a lot of i mean they should have had a method of due diligence and all but i'm so sure we haven't been found by any radar so far because we are very remote many csrs don't work in remote geographies but when we got the rebuild fund we got selected we went through this interview and i felt energized doing that interview
0: You and so many other leaders, as you've seen, have been doing this work forever. And so I personally find it ludicrous when donors ask, well, well, how can you trust the NGO? I'm like, well, how can I trust you? But I say this because I think there are many donors and donor agencies that talk about urgency. They're like, oh, but this needs to happen right away because we care so much about those who are impoverished and we want change to happen. But again, they say this after they spend many many years acquiring wealth not caring or doing anything in society and yet they put those same pressures of urgency for example to somebody like yourself and revati how old were you when you started
1: 29
0: exactly and i say that because the sense of urgency clearly you felt at the age of 29.
1: yeah and i didn't have salary for like 15 years of my 18 year experience you know so i like literally lived small money that my sister used to send me and not small money. She used to support me. My family supported me. And uh, I forgot to tell what we are going to do with the Rebuild grant. Can I say that now?
0: Yeah, please do.
1: With the Rebuild India grant, we've been able to pay all our staff a good salary, which is minimum. We are able to follow the Minimum Wages Act. So you might be thinking that why I wasn't following before, but that's the plight of this sector. But First thing we did was we are paying everyone salaries as per the Minimum Wages Act. And we're doing capacity building in technology and English because we think rural NGOs lack in that aspect. And with that, our team also can go on par. like They can improve their career and also do a better job at this place. And we're also investing in some technology because we've never had the money to do that.
0: I mean, I think for any of our organizations to survive beyond us and like you said, you had your sister. We all had, maybe, you know, definitely many people who sort of supported us at the beginning, but to enable others to pass this on when we're not here, which is important, or even while we're here, they need to feed their own families. They cannot go into poverty because of this work, because otherwise it's not sustainable, and they won't last, like you said, and they'll rightfully so have these issues about, do I care for my kids, or do I care for others' kids? And, and these are real challenges, I think, that we all face. So, I just want to say thank you, Revati. This has been an amazing hour and a half. It reiterates to me why I've been doing this for 24 years, why I continue to be inspired.
1: Thank you. Thank you for listening in and...
0: Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our work, our work of any of the guests, or the Rebuild India Fund, please go to our website, forward slash NCE, where we've got show notes, links, and much, much more. no Cost Extension is produced by the amazing Baka